0: Here it is!
1: From deep inside your audio device of choice.
0: I'm undergoing
2: self-isolation. Ooh, it's the only way to be.
0: Just for the lack of stimulation. Ooh, so come self isolation with me.
1: From New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, home of Yardi Gras, I'm Harry Shearer Welcome you to this edition of the Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. More cases of child abuse by the Spanish Catholic Church are slowly coming to light, according to the Spanish newspaper El Pais. Thank you. That was five years right there. After the Society of Jesus, commonly known as the Jesuits, recognized 81 victims since 1927 and announced plans for compensation, other religious congregations have begun to follow the order's example. El Pais spoke to ten of the main Catholic orders in Spain. Seven said they'd carried out or were in the process of investigating past cases of abuse and were equally open to compensating victims. But in pesos, you know. These investigations are not in-depth internal inquiries, though, but a review of existing archives. And the findings have not been made public and are still far from reflecting the extent of the abuse by the Catholic Church compared to the advances made in other countries such as Germany, where external an audit, external audit found that 3,600 minors had been abused by members of the church. So we we'll look forward to more from Spain. When the coronavirus forced churches to close their doors and give up Sunday collections, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Charlotte turned to the federal government's Small Business Relief Program and pocketed, did they have pockets and cassocks? More than $8 million. The diocese's headquarters, churches, and schools landed the help even though they had roughly $100 million of their own cash and short-term investments available last spring. The AP reports, after having seen financial records, when the cash catastrophe that church leaders feared didn't materialize, those assets topped $110 million by the summer. As the pandemic began to unfold, scores of Catholic dioceses across the U.S. received aid through the Paycheck Protection Program while sitting sitting on well over $10 billion in cash, short-term investments, or other available funds. That's the result of an Associated Press investigation into all that. The assets have grown in many dioceses. Yet even with that financial safety net, the 112 dioceses that share their financial statements, along with the churches and schools they run, collected at least 1.5 billion in taxpayer-backed aid. In Kentucky, funds available to the Archdiocese of Louisville, its parishes, and other organizations grew from at least 153 to 157 million during the fiscal year that ended in June said the AP. In Illinois, the Chicago Archdiocese had more than a billion in cash and investments in its headquarters and cemetery division as of May. The faithful continued to donate more than expected. The Raleigh D- uh, diocese collected at least $11 million in aid, yet during the fiscal year that ended in June, overall offerings were down just 5%, and the majority of these dioceses reported enough money on hand to cover at least six months of operating expenses, even without any new income. Financial resources of several dioceses rivaled or exceeded those available to publicly traded companies like Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, whose early participation in the program triggered outrages, and they returned the money. And uh, overall, the nation's nearly 200 dioceses and other Catholic institutions received at least $3 billion, making the Roman Catholic Church perhaps the biggest beneficiary of of the Paycheck Program, according to AP's analysis. And let's not forget, these are tax exempt organizations. On top of it, doing well by doing good. Mount Pleasant, New York. Mount Pleasant, no, not New York. Mount Pleasant, New York, hello. A lawsuit filed February 3 is asking for $300 million from South Carolina's largest Catholic high school, saying an ill-conceived locker room design allowed staff to watch underage students undress oops the lawsuit filed on behalf of students and parents at bishop england high school seeks tuition refunds and damages for every child who might have been seen school which is overseen by the diocese of charleston boasts several hundred students each year when the school was constructed In the late 1990s, way back in the late 1990s, where we didn't know anything about this stuff, a large window was placed in each locker room, separating it it from a staff office. School leaders said it was designed for student safety, but did not cover it until a staff member used the opening to illegally record video of young students. After decades of sex abuse allegations, the attorney representing victims in previous lawsuits against the diocese, said leaders should have known they were setting children up for exploitation the diocese said the lawsuit on the subject has absolutely no merit glad we cleared that up news of the godly ladies and gentlemen a copyrighted feature of this broadcast and now early in the proceedings the Apologies of the Week
2: we're so sorry
1: something must be up Well, start with the obvious laugh. Marjorie Taylor Greene has apologized. Kind of. Kind of. After she was... uh, After she got through that uh, attempt to uh, have Republicans kick her off the House committees and the Democrats went ahead and did it, she apologized publicly for the first time For those past incendiary comments. She apologized for a range of comments in the past few years that include suggesting school shootings were false flag operations and support for the violent conspiracy theory QAnon. Quote, I'm sorry for saying all those things were wrong and offensive. I'm happy to say that. She also called the Republicans and Democrats who voted to strip her of her committee assignments morons. Saddleback Church Pastor Rick Warren, this is in Southern California, he's apologized for a children's Sunday school curriculum video that used Asian cultural stereotypes to teach kids about the Bible. The video has been removed, but Michelle Ann Reyes, the Asian American Christian Collaborative, described it as using Asian culture as a prop for slapstick humor. The video, she said, blurs and dishonors distinctions and categories of Asian culture. In it, she said a pastor wears a Chinese shirt, makes kung fu sounds, (laughs) and pretends to make sushi that he then spits out. But Rick Warren, he's sorry for that. On the popular series for the Bon Appetit cast, Test Kitchen video channel. It's alive! Host Brad Leone walks viewers through the process of making foods that involve fermentation or preservation. His latest installment on canned seafood proved to be, according to the Washington Post, a jar too far. Bon Appetit removed the video segment from its platforms after experts pointed out that the method depicted on the show was dangerous and could result in the growth of potentially deadly bacteria that causes botulism. Inject the seafood into your lips. In the show, Leon prepares canned mussels and lobster using a technique known as the water bath method. He posted a mayor cup on his Instagram feed warning viewers not to try it at home. I apologize if you did see the reason it's a live episode. Please don't water bath your cans. I apologize again. we will do better as a teacher and student of food. The Milwaukee Police Department apologized this week to a victim in a mishandled rape case woman reached a settlement with the city. She uh, sued in part because her name, police interview, and investigative files were leaked. Deadline Washington. The D.C. jail has apologized after a female inmate was placed in a men's holding cell. Family members of the 24-year-old, college graduate with no prior criminal record, was involved in a domestic dispute with her boyfriend. Ends up in a Men's jail for an hour, but still, trauma. Melrose Park, Illinois, Melrose Park Mayor Ronald M. Serpico, the other Serpico, I guess, was recorded using profanity and a racial slur as he raised his voice at a resident at a village meeting last week, last Thursday. Mayor Serpico said he was sorry the man who was the target of the tirade was not buying it, and Mayor Serpico says he is not resigning. He will remain. The other Serpico. In the first season of Friends, Fisher Stevens played Lisa Kudrow's psychiatrist boyfriend. Steven now wants to apologize. Stevens now wants to apologize to the Friends cast for behaving like a Roger on set. That was the name of the boyfriend, and acting like a real a-hole while filming his episode. I'd never heard of Friends because it was just the beginning of the show and I didn't watch TV at the time much, he says. I'm sure if you ask them about me, the people on Friends, they would go, what a New York snob. He wants to let the cast know how sorry he is. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I was a dick. Not a Roger. Donald G. McNeil Jr., the New York Times science reporter whose fame grew during the pandemic as stepping down following allegations they used the N-word during a company-sponsored student trip to Peru uh, as an example of racist language. We do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent, said executive editor Dean Baquet in a memo to staff. McNeil was a 45-year veteran of, of the newspaper previously covered AIDS, Ebola, and Zika. He won the John Chancellor Award for Lifetime Achievement in Journalism just last year. McNeil apologized to the students on the trip and the colleagues, including the hundreds of people who trusted me to work with them closely during this pandemic. Meantime, the Times has also uh, announced the resignation of Andy Mills, a podcast journalist who worked on that series about the Islamic State, called Caliphate, that, according to Bloomberg, had to be corrected little more information had to be corrected because it was based on the single source narrative of a later to be proven liar. Country singer Morgan Wallen filmed hurling a racial slur in the streets of Nashville Sunday night. And then you know what hit the fan. He is heard on the video calling his friend a pussy ass mother. In a statement to TMZ, he said, I'm embarrassed and sorry I used an unacceptable, inappropriate racial slur. That was the second one he used, that I wish I could take back. Also, with the same modifier, by the way. There are no excuses to use this type of language ever. I want to sincerely apologize for using the word. I promise to do better. He may not get the chance. Cumulus Media and iHeart Media, to conglomerates, conglomerates that own a shed load of radio stations, have removed his records, and a fellow country star said, it actually is representative of Nashville because this isn't the first scuffle, his first scuffle, and he just demolished a huge streaming record last month regardless. We all know that isn't his first time saying that word. He got kicked off Saturday Night Live for some ruckus, apologized, and then was invited back on. Marvel Comics is offering exchanges alongside an apology to readers after alleged anti-Semitic remarks made it into the art of this week's Immortal Hulk number 3. In the issue, a number of problems around harmful depictions and stereotypes of Jewish people were noticed by readers, including the bizarre use of the Star of David and the unfortunate misspelling of the word ju- Jewelry. The uh, artist in question admitted in a statement he had, quote, no excuse for the depiction of the Star of David, and he failed to understand how harmful the stereotype was. He apologized, as did Marvel. And they uh, are replacing the comic just as soon as they possibly can. And Japan's Ministry of Health has admitted that the Android version of the COVID-19 contact tracing app, has not informed users of contact with virus carriers since September of last year. Japan has recently experienced a third wave of infections. News of that failure is a significant error and embarrassment. The ministry admitted to the problem in a Thursday update to its webpage and apologized, deeply apologized, for the dam- damaging the trust of many people who use the app. Google Play page for the app, the contact tracing app, reveals users think it's a dud. The app has a 1.8 out of 5 rating for more than 15,000 reviewers. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
0: Till now been turned down time and again and if we meet someday
1: This is the show. We are deep into year two of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, there is appropriately enough uh, controversy about the rollout of the vaccines. Um, and it is devolved, as much else does these days, into politics. I wanted to have a discussion about the rollout of the vaccines and what it means and how it happens uh, with a guest who has a slightly different view of it. Uh, Matt Stoller is a research associate at the American Economic Liberties Project. He's the author of a wonderful book on the subject of monopoly in America, or monopolies in America, called Goliath, and of a weekly newsletter on the same subject called Big. And uh, he's here to talk with me today. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Your newsletter of a week ago took on the subject of the release and distribution of vaccines. And it focused on a couple areas of monopoly. So you aver. One is devices. And you mentioned the name of a company that I remember from when I was a kid and reading the label on the thermometer as it sat in my mouth for forever. B&D. Is that the same company that you're referring to now? Beckton Dickinson. Yeah.
3: Yeah, they're a syringe monopolist. They also make a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, that, that's its a that's its own crazy uh, monopoly story. Hospital purchasing in the whole healthcare system, I mean, America spends twice as much or three times as much as most countries on healthcare, and we get worse outcomes and we don't cover our whole population. And so the question is, why is that? And the answer is one medical report in a couple of years ago said it's the prices. Stupid, we just charge a lot more for things that are often worse. Everything from syringes to hospital beds, and it's because there's there's monopoly power everywhere. Um, so Becton Dickinson is the basically the monopoly provider of syringes to hospitals and healthcare providers. They they're part of what are called group purchasing organizations. And uh, hospitals do all their buying through these large group purchasing organizations and which get funded through kickbacks from the suppliers. So basically BD, as well as a bunch of other hospital suppliers, they will give kickbacks to these GPOs and then they will, in return, they they exclude competitors from being able to sell to hospitals. And there, in syringes, there's there's been a lot of innovation in syringes. Um, the most recent innovation, I believe, was the retractable syringes, kind of like a like a pen
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: that was developed in the 90s to deal with HIV. But BD excluded them from the hospital. The company called Retractable Syringes, they excluded them from the market, lost a bunch of antitrust suits, but still, Retractable won these suits, but they still weren't able to get into the market. Anyway, so BD is now this, this Goliath, and they make uh, syringes. And there's a specific type of syringe that would allow... Um, allow us to extract more from uh, each vial the, the, From each vial, and there is a dramatic shortage of these th- these syringes and bd which has always claimed whenever it merged or or fought off an antitrust suit that it, it needs this scale to be efficient
2: mm-hmm.
3: um and to, and to make this sort of breadth of products that it makes they are uh, responsible for the shortage of this specialized syringe which in an other if the market were competitive you'd probably be able to ramp up much mm-hmm. more quickly. So one of the reasons why we we have we are not able to most efficiently use our vaccine supply is because we have a syringe monopolist standing in the way. Wow. I want to just preface this yeah. with something that I think people don't hear a lot, which is like something that was amazing that happened in twenty twenty, which is that we developed these incredible vaccines,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and that is a that's like an Apollo moon landing type of accomplishment, and and we were able to do it with global cooperation where the Chinese mapped the, the DNA of the vaccine with technology that was developed here, but then eventually moved its way to China. Then we took those developments um, online, uh, the, the map of the, the virus. And within a year, we had tested vaccines rolling off of trucks ready to be injected. And that is an astonishing story. The government did an incredible job both financing the research that ultimately was the underpinning of the technology that went into these vaccines. That happened under Obama in 2012, 2013, 2014. It's called mRNA. And then the uh, Operation Warp Speed actually contracted with six companies Mm -hmm. and said, uh, we want you to compete to develop a vaccine and we will guarantee purchase of these vaccines if you get it through, if it works and if it's safe and so in this competitive market that was explicitly set up by the government with end purchasing by the government uh we were able to develop these incredible vaccines uh one of them has to get some german technology and like that's amazing so like let's just remember how wow like that's just like astonishing what we did what the american system was able to produce when it was kind of at its best and remember that
1: okay i'm i'm Mindful also of the fact uh, pointed out this week that the Russians seem to have developed a a, va- a potent vaccine. Yeah, the,
3: the Russians the Russian vaccine is good. The Chinese vaccines are not, uh, but the Russian vaccine is good, and you know that's that's a great thing too. So I think we have to look at this and like go humanity,
2: mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So what's getting in the way of humanity? I mean, we're not the only ones suffering from problems uh, of distribution once the vaccines are produced. The EU and Britain notably had a, a quite famous spat last week that uh, almost got the <laughs> Irish up in arms again. But let's focus on the United States for the moment and talk about uh, two massive uh, drugstore chains, CVS and Walgreens. Um, and and you in your uh, newsletter suggest that they are... Uh, in many ways, responsible for problems.
3: Okay, so first of all, America, our vaccine distribution is not going great, but we are fifth in the world in terms of the percentage of the population that's been vaccinated. About 10, 8 to 10% of the population has been vaccinated so far. Israel's at 50%. Mm-hmm. So Israel's blowing everyone else away. And then you've got England, a, a UK, I think they're about 15, and UAE, Bahrain, and then America. Hmm. And Europe is a mess. Yeah. Aside, they just They're a total mess. So... Um, but in America, some of the states are doing much better than others, and one of the states that's doing really well is West Virginia.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And so, is that the first know,
1: time West Virginia has been number one in anything? I, don't, I like West Virginia. <laughs> no, I am not, not, not. West Virginia
3: yet. broke off from the uh, from Virginia because during the Civil War, because they were like, we don't want to support slavery,
2: mm.
3: and then West Virginia was a Democratic state until nineteen eighty eight. It was the basis. Of the labor movement, coal miners mm-hmm. like West Virginia's. It's got a populist history, so I think it should be very disturbing to to Democrats that that state is now so uh, Trump loving. Mm. But uh, it is not. You're not talking about Dixiecrats,
2: okay. basically.
3: You're talking about a, a, you know, a very, very populist, uh, a very populist tradition.
1: Yeah. No, um, I, I I was just poking at the fact that it is a notably poor state. And uh, no, and
3: it's poor and rural. Right. And like, so how is this poor rural state doing so much better than everyone else Mm -hmm. on uh, vaccinations? Right. You know, California and New York spent a ton of money on public health systems and and they're all fancy. And what's going on? And I I think what you have in in every state is, you know, you have different levels of competence because the rollout in the in the U.S., you know, Trump did a good job with the vaccine development, but a very bad job with the pretty much everything else, including the rollout,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, left it up to the states. And some states are pretty competent and others are not. And as it turns out, um, one of the factors in whether a state is able to deploy these vaccines is the structure of their pharmaceutical their pharmacies, because a lot of people get medical care at pharmacies, injections and things like that, you know, flu shots and mm-hmm. whatnot.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and the Trump administration set up said we want every state to sign a deal with cbs and walgreens to distribute vaccines and we want cbs and walgreens to specialize in giving vaccines to nursing homes uh west virginia simply doesn't have enough cbs's and walgreens to make that viable so they had to go to their locally owned pharmacies they are predominantly in rural areas and they're usually owned by a pharmacist who is a healthcare provider so, the state government went to them, and, as it turns out, it, they were way better at doing the job than c v s and Walgreens. They were more flexible, they had better um, i t systems they had better records on patients, they had personal relationships with patients, and they moved at the speed of a small business versus c v s and Walgreens, which were these big hulking, creaky bureaucracies that had a really tough time you know doing anything and so that's been a fact, it's not the only factor, but it's a significant factor. And the reason it matters is because, you know, and I'm a, I am ai look at monopoly power, so I'm not a specialist in medicine or anything like that. But the way we've run our society for the last 40 years is our policymakers who think about corporate power have said, we like stuff to be big, because if it's big, there are what they call economies of scale. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that if you have A small steel plant it doesn't it produces steel but it's kind of expensive whereas the more steel you produce the cheaper each grade of steel or each steel product becomes so there's no like family artisanal auto factories right you want big auto factories same with like search engines things like that like the bigger the more efficient right this theory of economies of scale has underpinned our merger policy for the last 40 years and our antitrust and regulatory policy and it's the reason that CVS and Beckton Dickinson and Walgreens were, who were, you know, CVS and Walgreens were relatively small companies mm-hmm. in the 70s, in 80s, and they were able to buy their way to dominance. They bought up a bunch of different chains. CVS then bought uh, what's called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Manager, which is basically a, a, a billing and pricing uh, system for, for pharmaceuticals. And then they also bought Aetna which is a large insurance company, and they're effectively a huge conglomerate that touches one out of every three Americans with their health care. Ouch. Uh, not physically. That would be I, weird. I know. <laughs> but every time they bought someone, they would make the argument to regulators, this will help us become more efficient and deliver better care. And the regulators said, oh, okay, we got it. That's, that's good. All right. Good. Go off and do, do better, <laughs> right? Be bigger and better. And what we can now see, and this is true across like a lot of the economy, there were hundreds of acquisitions by big tech and and big ag and big pharmaceutical companies and so on and so forth. But what we can see with the deployment of the vaccine is that that the economy of scale argument here was just nonsense. It just was not true. These companies are more profitable. They have more market power, but they are less efficient than pharmacies that are owned by a local pharmacist who is a health care provider
1: in the town. You uh, you mentioned in your newsletter that uh, a, a woman had studied. Stacey Mitchell. Yes. And uh, she found in her study that independent pharmacies are better for consumers than chains. Chains, she says, offer worse health care delivery in terms of The time pharmacists spend with patients, the range of tests they do, what they offer in terms of screenings and the pricing is much better. Now, presumably efficiency, size, all of that uh, should tend to lower prices. So what's the deal here?
3: Yeah, so it's it's just you get better uh, you get better prices for medicine at independent pharmacies, and then also independent pharmacists are more likely to do things like home delivery. Seventy mm. percent of of local of independent pharmacists do home delivery, and chains basically don't.
1: What what, what about Drug Dash? Oh, that doesn't exist. Sorry.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Amazon just recently promised to Biden, "We'll do everything we can to help with the vaccine rollout." And Stacey was like, "What are they going to do? They don't." You can't like I mean, they can deliver you a vaccine, I guess, if they figure out the storage technology it has to be really cold, but you can't give yourself a vaccine. So <laughs> it's really an empty promise.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so the basic dynamic here is that we have independent pharmacies who are better and more efficient and offer better prices. And this leads to the question that you just asked, which is why aren't they why are why, you know, they've they declined a number by you know a couple hundred pharmacies a year since 2010 or so, whereas the chains are kind of growing, why is that, Mm -hmm. right? In a market system, you would expect that the more efficient producer of goods and services is going to grow and the less efficient one is going to shrink. Mm -hmm. And so the the answer is that CVS has market power, right? So one of the CVS, and this is is going to get to sort of an arcane area of the healthcare system, but CVS owns something called a pharmacy benefits manager. Mm -hmm. And a pharmacy benefits manager what they basically do is they keep a list of all of the pharmaceuticals out there and what they do, and they then sell that service of saying, we'll keep track of all these pharmaceuticals to health insurance companies. It's called a, far- a formulary, that list. Mm-hmm. And a health insurance company will be like, okay, you take care of the formulary for our, for our, um, for our clients, so you will dis- just decide what drugs we're going to offer for what conditions and then go and negotiate with the drug companies to get us a better price and go and negotiate with the and this is the key the pharmacies Mm -hmm. to tell them what their reimbursement rates are and because you're big and you're knowledgeable about these drugs you can get better prices now so they essentially set prices in the market now i think one can can see that there's a problem if cvs both has drug stores and it sets prices for its drugstore competitors, right? That's what's, it's also very, PBM's a very concentrated industry. There's basically three PBMs that control the market. So CVS is now saying to its rivals, these are local independent drugstores, hey, um, we're gonna change your reimbursement rates and lower the amount of revenue that you get for different medicine. Oh, and by the way, We know how hard it is to run a drugstore these days. Why don't you just sell out to
2: us?
3: (laughs) Right? It's a kind of offer you can't refuse dynamic. Mm -hmm. So if you can set the prices for your competitors because you have some control somewhere else up in the supply chain, then you are effectively the mob boss of the industry, regardless of how efficient you
1: are. It's classic market power. That's right. That's right. Let's get back to the vaccine. Let's take um, areas that are not... Uh, like West Virginia that have a lot of CVSs and Walgreens so theoretically they should be able to handle this have they done so effectively in states like let's say California or Louisiana uh
3: I think Louisiana's done a pretty good job um I think the Dakotas have done a pretty good job Alaska has California not so much um Nevada, not so much. I mean, Nevada, there's, but I mean, I I think you'd have to, we have to do a lot more analysis of, um, you know, of the, the different factors that mm-hmm. have gone into the deployment of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that chain versus local pharmacies are the only factor that's happening. But just with West Virginia, it was really obvious because West Virginia, you know, they had um, everybody who was in a nursing home, was offered a vaccine by late December, right? I mean, they were just like way ahead of the game and it was because they could work through their local pharmacies, independent pharmacies. I think in a bunch of other states, the independent pharmacies are actually having trouble getting access to the vaccines because states signed deals with CVS and Walgreens,
2: Hmm.
1: right?
3: So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that just having a lot of local pharmacies is gonna help you, you actually have to use them.
1: So you're suggesting that the trump administration abetted the market power of two near monopolies or oligopolies right
3: yeah i think that's right i mean i think they they you know they went off and you know when, when remember in like march or april when trump was doing his like daily press conferences mm-hmm. on covid i
1: like, love those
3: th- they were fun at first and then it was like oh he doesn't really actually have anything to say this is annoying i actually want someone to deal with this yeah um but you know, he would often bring in, you know, CEOs, major CEOs, mm-hmm. right? Walmart or, or um, you know, Target or whoever. And in this case, Trump was just doing what, like, Democrats and Republicans have done, which is to say, you run a big, powerful institution, you must know things. <laughs> you must know how to do things, mm-hmm. right? And actually what people who run big, powerful institutions know is they know how to acquire lots of power through political machination, but they don't actually know how to do anything useful. Um, but that's not necessarily how, how Trump thinks or how a lot of our policymakers have, th- have thought. So he came in and he said, Oh, well, you know, we have these big guys. And these big guys are really great. They're gonna help everything and fix everything. And that's what you know, what they ended up doing. Mm-hmm. There was like, a I forget the companies that were doing um, the testing, but they like, there's there's these problems, because there's been this attempt to, you know, take testing uh, blood Labs, Which are very, you know, you buy a lab machine and you get a phlebotomist and you can set up a lab. Mm-hmm. But there's been this roll up of, um, of labs into um, this company, LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics. Those Quest are the two like, yeah. ones with market power. Yeah. That The same thing. They were like not as good at at testing. And the reason I think they actually got kicked out of South Dakota. But the reason is because they don't focus on actually the lab business. They focus on acquiring more labs and they focus on negotiating to get more bargaining leverage. So, like, that's kind of writ broadly in our economy. We have a problem where most of our business and financial leaders are actually not focused on business. They're focused on just acquiring power.
1: You uh, you say in your newsletter, I'm just looking at it uh, uh, for reference, that uh, going back to CVS for a minute, that when CVS buys out drugstores, local drugstores, they often close them down. Uh, why do they do that?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is something Stacy told me. It's because because what they want to do is they want to they want to eliminate competition, and they don't really care if they uh, if they're serving a community. So if they eliminate a competitor, then they can say, "Well, you have to either drive forty miles to our store, um, or you have to use our specialty pharmacy that's a mail order pharmacy." And that's that's what they want to do. They want to roll up the market. They're not. That interested in kind of, I mean, sometimes they'll buy it and they'll they'll operate it themselves, change it from a, you know, Mr. Smith's pharmacy to CVS. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes they'll just close it down because the point isn't to uh, own another pharmacy. The point is to own more of the market.
1: Now, uh, I remember as recently as maybe five years ago that if you looked at the drugstore business, you would think of it as a big three And there was uh, CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. Right. I think Rite Aid, who did, I think
3: Walgreens bought up a bunch of Rite Aid stores. And and there were also, I think, Target owned a bunch of stores and they got bought by CVS. I mean, there's a bunch of, there was Eckerd, like there were a whole bunch of chains that got bought up by uh, CVS and Walgreens. So you've seen this kind of massive merger spree. Oh, and then one other important thing to note is that if you're CVS and you buy a local pharmacy and shut it down, it's not like it's easy to start a new one, right? So it'd be one thing if you bought it up and shut it down and it was easy entry into the market, but it's not easy entry. Just like it's not easy. You know, I I used to see when I was a kid, I went to the doctor and it was a independent practice. It's really hard to set up an independent practice now as a doctor uh, because you have to negotiate with giant um, healthcare companies. And I, it's, Probably the same thing with, with, with drugstores. It's like if you have a drugstore and you can run it, you have some deals cut already, that's one thing. But to set up a new drugstore is really hard because you're dealing with PBMs or you're dealing with software providers and you're dealing with payment systems that are all very concentrated. So it's like, okay, uh, you don't have ease of entry into that line of business. So CVS doesn't have to worry about potential competition into that market either.
1: You're suggesting that um, bigness in one side of the economy acts as a bar to entry for smallness in other parts of the economy that have to deal with the, the former right
3: yeah that's right that's
1: right that's not uh <laughs> that's not a good look um let me move to something that made the news this week which was that um senator amy klobuchar introduced a bill which got some media coverage on thursday uh purporting to be um and I don't know the details of it, you may. I do. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about it a little bit. Is, is it what it purports to be?
3: So so she she introduced a number of different bills that touch a number of different parts of antitrust law, including mergers and certain forms of anti-competitive conduct. Uh, and it's it's stuff that she's introduced since twenty sixteen. So she's like she's been writing legislative proposals. There's some good stuff in there. But the, 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 the dynamic that we have right now is that the economy has become much more concentrated since 2016, since you had a bunch of mergers under Trump and then since COVID. And so we have to get more aggressive in the way that we think about changing the law. We also have a bunch of Trump judges. And so you can't kind of be vague about the language because the Trump judges will just take that and do whatever they want with it. So the, the instructions have to be very specific. We think the instructions in her bill are a little bit too vague. Mm-hmm. But I'll say this about Senator Klobuchar. This is the beginning of a process, and she knows that. She's taking over the antitrust subcommittee mm-hmm. from the Republican, and she wants to hold a bunch of hearings in different sectors of the economy over the next two years and really pick up the mantle from the House, which did a big investigation on um, on big tech, and sort of do that in other sectors. And I think going through and looking at the economy in detail, um, I mean, we suggested to, to them that they look at, like, the chain store dynamic with the, fu- with the vaccine rollout. Like, we think that she's really smart, and she was actually an antitrust lawyer, so she's really knowledgeable about this area of law. She has a book coming out about it. And so I I think, you know, she's not where we are philosophically, but I I think this is a starting point. And so, you know, it's exciting to have members of Congress that are really taking this seriously, that are in the right positions in both the House and the Senate, and actually on both the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle, really trying to solve this problem of bigness instead of yelling at each other about silly sort of partisan arguments. Like, this is a real investigation of the economy. And I think that's why we're not like totally into all of the details of the legislation that she introduced. Although there's some good stuff in there. Like there is a merger presumption that says if you're bigger than a hundred billion dollars, you basically can't do any more mergers. And that's a very good thing. But we are just excited that we think that there's real leadership on both, both houses of Congress, hopefully in the antitrust agencies, in the rest of the government. And yeah, we think it's like a, it's going to be a, a very good, few years for anti-monopoly policy.
1: Yeah, I guess the reason I was asking is because there is that in the air. Um, yeah. And the suspicious part of me thinks um, a, 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 a theoretical politician would like to ride that wave, but not uh, not uh, roil the waters too much.
3: I think that's right. I mean, I think you have a lot of political leaders and and academics, too. I mean, let's, you know, media people like Let's not just isolate this. It's not like politicians are the only people who have ever been opportunists. <laughs> no. Um, uh, so, so there's a lot of people that are like, oh, here's my thing about, you know, what we need to do about big tech or monopolies. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunism and cynicism. But, and I think that like the, the basic fear that most people have that I have, I'm sure you have it, is it, is a sort of pervasive sense that we haven't really governed well for decades. <laughs> so, it's hard to believe in the political process as a focal point of change. And so we're always, we're kind of always sort of looking for the scam. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I did talk about how, what an amazing development the vaccine was, because I think it's important to recognize that politics can work. Um, And I mean, that's really important. Like if we just don't believe in democracy, then democracy, we it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And, America's nice. There's a lot of nice things about this country that we were able to create through our democratic system, including this vaccine. So let's not give up on it. And that's where I think I that's the position I have on this monopoly stuff. We were talking about it. You know, I learned about it in 2011 or so. um, And no one was talking about it then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's still a relative latecomer. I mean, monopolies have been here for a long time. But now it's just because it's a totally different conversation. And to be even a cynical opportunist, you have to talk about the way you would break up these companies. And that's the kind of cynical opportunism that I'll, you know, that we want to (laughs) see. I
1: I suspect you're about to sit down and write an anthem called America the Nice. Um, One of the things that strikes me about all of this is that this is a cycle. We're now at a point in American economic history where it's easy to see that there have been periods where uh, stuff got bigger and companies got more powerful and more monopolistic power was exercised in the marketplace. And then there have been at least one period uh, we know of, um, coinciding roughly with Teddy Roosevelt, um, where the Sherman and Clayton Acts were passed and Standard Oil was broken up and in a later period where ATT and t was broken up, although it certainly scampered back together again as quickly as it could, but so this this there seem we seem to be in another part of the of the latest version of this cycle. do you see it that way
3: i, I hear what you're saying i it, I always go back and forth on this it, the, there is a sort of a traditional anti monopoly sentiment that actually comes out of England from the 1600s. And that really was suffused in the American Revolution. And there were, you know, a lot of the Civil War it was people that were against the land monopolists, mm-hmm. which they considered the slave owners. And you had uh, the populists and Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and FDR. And there's just this whole dynamic, which, you know, AT&T was broken up in the 80s, but that's actually the third time it was broken up. It was broken up in 1913, 1956. In 1982, Mm -hmm. America just likes to break up Um, (laughs) AT&T. It's fun. You know, the the original AT&T was American Telephone and Telegraph. Mm -hmm. And in 1913, that one of those T's went away. They had to Mm -hmm. spin off a Western Union. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this isn't the first time we've done it. Um, And so, you know, I think something happened after 1980 that was very unusual I mean, a kind of an anomaly when we just really got rid of that anti-monopoly tradition. So there have been periods of time in the 1880s, maybe, or 1920s when we consolidated power. But people, nobody ever, people didn't like monopolies. In the political system, we did talk about monopolies. But what happened after 1980 was really this total airbrushing of the anti-monopoly tradition out of our memories, no longer fearing financial power. So Mm -hmm. things like George Stigler, who's an important economist, talked about how they had discovered that usury was fine. And
1: hence, it was like... Hence the uh, lifting of all state limits on credit card interest rates, right?
3: That's right. So this is the, the economists have decided that usury is fine. You can go back to Babylonian times <laughs> and find prohibitions on usury. I mean, everybody knows and has known in every civilization that's ever existed in human history that usury is not fine. Usury destabilizes the society, mm-hmm. right? It enslaves people. Like, that's what it does. And so it also creates financial instability. Mm -hmm. So we know that. We've known that for thousands of years. And then in like the 1970s and 80s, these Chicago school economists are like, oh, we figured it out. Usury is not a problem. It's efficient. And people were like, for for 30 years, they were like, oh, I guess this is efficient. Mm -hmm. And then the financial crisis happens in 2008. Mm -hmm. And 2008 to 12. And now people were like, well, maybe maybe some of those ideas weren't awesome. Mm. So I, I think you're right that, you know, there have been periods where we've done stronger and weaker enforcement. But I do think we're in this weird period, which is very un-American. Like, basically, post-1980 American history is just different than than pre-1980 American history.
1: Hmm. Let me circle back to uh, CVS and, and Walgreens for one second. The mechanisms that you've described in terms of uh, control of the market— uh, and, and raising prices as a result, wouldn't necessarily suggest an impediment in the supply chain from uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers to uh, dispensers of vaccines, would they? That's right. So if we're talking about why we're looking at suboptimal performance in vaccine uh, deployment, CVS and, and Walgreens would be part of the answer, but not by any means the whole answer, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, you you go to you go into a pandemic with the healthcare infrastructure you have, not the one that you would want. You're being Rumsfeldian. So, very Rumsfeldian, right? Yeah. Um. And so we have these chain pharmacies. They're inefficient. They're a problem. But there are thousands of them, and they're in lots of communities, and they have some capacity. So we have to use them as best we can. We have to. It's the same with BD. You know, they make syringes, so we have to, you know, use that capacity. But I think we should recognize and learn, and hopefully, that's what Senator Klobuchar will will be um, leading. We have to realize that we should just restructure our um, our healthcare delivery infrastructure, both public and private. And we have a good model, which is we have about twenty thousand locally owned pharmacies, and we should kind of get back to that.
1: Hmm. Matt Stoller, fascinating stuff. Um, Goliath is a great read. The newsletter, big every week in your inbox. The one this week is particularly fascinating as well. Thank you for spending some time with us today.
3: Hey, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.
1: A little technical problem there for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm. The start of California's annual rainy season has been pushed back from November to December, prolonging the state's increasingly destructive wildfire season by nearly a month, opening the way for the Jewish space lasers. The study cannot confirm the shift is connected to climate change. The results are consistent with climate models. Who doesn't like a climate model? Walk, walk into a party with one on your arm, everybody's going to be looking at it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week. Same time on these radio stations and on your audio device of choice. Whenever the heck you want to listen to it. And it'd be just like owning your own space later, laser. If you'd agree to be with me... Maybe I need a more technical promise. If you'd agree to be with me then, would you? Already... Thank you very much, uh-huh. The show comes, no, before that I have to tell you that uh, the email address for this program, the playlist you hear, here, and your chance to get Cars I Talk T-shirts are all very conveniently stashed at harrysherrer.com And me? Well, thank you for asking. I'm on Twitter. Haven't been banned yet. At the Harry Shearer. Now, if I went into the TV pillow pitchman business, they, they could very well ban me, but be my first down. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long. From the Carnival Crescent City.